following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes grabs you right from the start, and it's such a sober view of life that some doubt its spiritual value. Some rabbis treated it like a paper cut, unwanted, irritating, unnecessary. One wrote, O Solomon, where is your wisdom? Not only do your words contradict the words of your father David, they contradict themselves. That's a short-sighted and blind view of Ecclesiastes. Far from a paper cut, Ecclesiastes is precious ointment for our souls. It's a diffuser of precious essential elements. It is gold. Herman Melville called it the truest of all books. Philip Ryken calls Ecclesiastes the only Bible book written on a Monday morning. Ecclesiastes is wisdom with an edge. Painful, purposeful pruning so that sensitive souls would bear much fruit. Some of you don't want to be here today. Some of you are battling competing desires. Some of you are confused and battling depression. Some of you are hurt and angry and blaming others. Some of you are asking God for assurance that all will be well. And some of you have 150 questions, and I won't be answering them all after the service right when we're starting Ecclesiastes. Some of you are faithfully following Jesus with that Romans 7 battle, that Romans 8 victory, the Romans 9 assurance, and the Romans 11 fixation on the glory of God. Your life doesn't make sense. Questions and quandaries collide. Life is hard. You're like you're walking in you know, five feet deep snow for five miles. And you don't like life unexplained, neither do I. How relationships unravel and beds remain unmade and projects unfinished and bills unpaid and laundry unfolded and dishes unwashed. Business undone. Late fees and hopes shelved and dreams on hold and you feel like life is passing you by. And you want to survive, and not just survive, you want to thrive, and you don't want to crash and burn. Ecclesiastes can help you. Ecclesiastes is biblical hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, for the soul. It's rubbing alcohol. It's first aid antiseptic for your soul. It's unleashed, honest, unfiltered power. Jeffrey Myers said, when the true faith is robustly biblical, it will honestly narrate and confront the intractable evil and misery of this life. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. There's nothing like it. 
there's a little bit of Job thrown in, there's a little bit of Proverbs, it sounds a little bit like the Psalms at times, but it is an utterly unique experience with the word of God. Ecclesiastes is another kind of epic. We need Ecclesiastes. It's valuable beyond comprehension. It it asks the big questions. It helps you worship God. It helps you live for God, not yourself. It helps you be honest about your trouble. It tells you why you get up every morning to go do what God has given you to do. It tells you why everything matters. Ecclesiastes is old school, old soul, old man wisdom. How to live in light of death. So please find Ecclesiastes in your Bibles right after Proverbs and stand with me as I read two sections out of Ecclesiastes today. We're going to start verse by verse next week, but I'm going to read chapters 1, 1 through 9, and 12, 9 to 14 this morning. And you know as a church we'll be reading all of Ecclesiastes together tonight. And just so you know, we'll have dinner first, and then we'll come in here, we'll pray, we'll read all 12 chapters, we'll pray, and then we'll leave. Starts at the new 5 o'clock, ends at the new 7 o'clock. I'm going to read the inspired, inerrant, infallible, perfect, authoritative word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And then chapter 12, we'll pick it up at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
Lord, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. The Old Testament wisdom literature, you have Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. All of it is based on the Bible's first assumption. There is one God. God's sovereignty is primarily. The first line of the Bible, the first line of the Old Testament, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You notice that Genesis does not argue God's existence. The Jews were convinced that God had already done that job pretty well himself. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The Old Testament, though, reveals what God is like, his name, his character, his attributes, his self-disclosure to his covenant people recorded. We're in the wisdom literature. This is Written by kings for kings to instruct in royal wisdom. Now, American Christians come to wisdom literature and say, I want concrete advice. I want to know how to rule a kingdom. Not so simple, not so fast. You need to notice the timing of the wisdom books in Israel's history, where they show up. It's connected to the kingdom phase. A world of priests leading to a world of kings, leading to a world of prophets, where God's people are being trained as God's new humanity. You go all the way back to the garden, the beginning of human history, and in Genesis chapters one through three, here is God promising kingly wisdom to Adam if he would obey. You've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam failed to guard the garden failed to guard his bride from the serpent. And yet God's plan was not thwarted. God continued his work in humanity. Solomon comes on the scene and he prays for wisdom, 1 Kings 3, 7 through 9. He says, I want to discern between good and evil. But the best of the kings were flawed It merely pointed to the arrival of a greater king, the greater Adam, God the Son, assuming our human nature, living as a man among us. The last Adam, serving and guarding his bride, the church, flawlessly faithful, the sovereign Savior, did what Adam did not do. You notice as you go through wisdom literature, that it doesn't deal uh, head-on with all of God's saving acts. Graham Goldsworthy said this, wisdom literature is not an alternative way of looking at God and reality. It complements salvation history. It's the theology of the redeemed living under God's rule. Ecclesiastes points to wisdom through suffering and through realizing that only God can satisfy, and ultimately, God providing the only Savior. Consider the story of Ecclesiastes. It's actually not really a story. 
It's more a documentary. It's a collection of journal entries, no frills, facts, unfiltered biblical reality TV, if you will. And it's kind of a story, and it goes something like this. There was once a man, a king, and the son of a king, blessed with wisdom, who went astray and then returned and lived to tell. He was preserved by grace. He had something to say. This preacher, teacher, gatherer is what his name means, collector of wisdom, Solomon says, and he preached it well, like well-driven nails. Koheleth, the preacher, Solomon, identified, king in Jerusalem, son of David. And what was his life like? It had not been a preset, easy-button, automatic stroll in the park. He came from privilege. His early years were humble. And then he went after shiny things. Some may have given him a pass, like, hey, you know, he's the king. I mean, all those temptations, what do you expect? His life was a topsy-turvy, regret-laden affair. Another time we'll look, but in 1 Kings 11, we find out what happened. The impact on future generations was disastrous. Ecclesiastes is not an experiment. It's not a bunch of what-ifs. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's experience. He's telling it unvarnished, and he's sounding almost hopeless at times. But don't misread Ecclesiastes that way. Solomon was not depressed. He was realistic. He wanted others to learn from his mistakes, just like we do. We want others to learn from our mistakes. Why life is futile for God-rejectors and wanderers. This is Solomon looking back. This is sage, do as I say, not as I once did, advice. The teacher, the preacher, the collector of wise sayings, preaching wisdom to us, and we are the beneficiaries. Learn from Kohelet's example. Solomon tried everything, quite literally, to see what might satisfy the hunger in his soul. Just like some of you are trying everything, quite literally, to satisfy the hunger in your soul. Solomon worked around God's revealed wisdom, and he's pointing out for all of us to see in Ecclesiastes, here's what it's like to have it all and be empty. Contrast Ecclesiastes with Job. Job was emptied. Solomon was filled. Job suffered. Solomon wasn't satisfied. Job was reduced to nothing. He was tempted to throw in the towel. And here's Solomon having everything, tempted to worship it all. So 
like us. Solomon tells it straight. He went with the world. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is, I was made for another world. And Solomon admits, he went with the world under the sun. He made that choice. The Ecclesiastes could really be called corrective lenses for your soul. Corrective lenses for your never satisfied soul. Time-tested perspective on life. His main idea is simple. Glorify God and die. Glorify God and die because only God satisfies. He's preaching to us. If you dig around the roots in Ecclesiastes, you'll find some key themes. You'll find some key phrases and words. And there are themes that teach. There's words that we grow by. And I want to highlight five of those for us today, followed by some related goals as we go through this series. The five themes I want to highlight today are these. First, life. Second, death. Third, perspective. Fourth, grace. And fifth, worship. Life. Death. Perspective. Grace. And worship. Let's start with life. The nature of life. Right off the bat in Ecclesiastes, you see this word vanity. You see the word futility as well. The Hebrew word for vanity, translated vanity or vain, refers to a mist, a vapor, a mere breath. Like a cold morning and you go outside and you breathe and you see your breath for a moment, but it's gone. Or you've got a cup of tea or coffee and there's steam rising up, but you can't grasp it. It's the grasping after wind that... Solomon talks about. It's something fleeting. It's something elusive. Five times in verse two, vanity. 29 times more in Ecclesiastes. It's like Psalm 39 verse five, life is a breath. It's like James 4.14, life is a mist. Life is a vapor, it's steam. It tells us three things about life when you see this word vanity. Three things. First, life is short. Second, life is elusive. And third, life is repetitive. Life is short. It's transient. It's temporary. Samuel Rutherford said the sands of time are sinking. Right now, the clock is running, and it's running down, not up. Life is short, but it's also elusive. It's like a snow leopard. It's like your keys like steam, and life is repetitive. The sun rises and the sun sets. You eat, you eliminate, you sleep, you work, you wake, you brush, you floss, you work, you rest, you eat, you sleep. It's an endless cycle. You're stuck on repeat. The phrase, nothing new under the sun, 
It signifies now. It signifies time-bound. It signifies this earth. Ecclesiastes is telling us this is what it's like for all people. Life is short, life is elusive, and life is repetitive. Secondly, death. Your inevitable death. Chapter 7, verse 2 says it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting because the living take it to heart because this is the end of all mankind. Chapter 9, verse 5 says the living know that they will die. Thinking about your inevitable death will help you live more fully alive. Thinking about your inevitable death helps you live life more fully for God's glory. You think of the beginning and end of your life as bookends. There on the left, the date of your birth. There on the right, the date of your death, and it frightens you. It's like 11-year-old Siggy in the movie, What About Bob? Lamenting, you are going to die. I am going to die. We are going to die. It's going to happen. He says, what else is there to be afraid of? Solomon is not being fatalistic. He is being realistic. Only God knows the day and the time of your death. Before your umbilical cord was cut, God knew how many days he had ordained for you. Death by living is Solomon's motto. And we try as hard as we can not to die. March 4th, 2020. 6.45 a.m., fitness center at the Embassy Suites in Glendale. Five people furiously working out, trying not to die. Four people running in place, me pedaling, going nowhere but logging miles. Why? To be in better shape, to slow down time, to be healthier, to not die? Write it down. You are going to die. I don't know why you're laughing. It's true. I love you. You're going to die. Short, elusive, repetitive life, your inevitable death. And third, perspective. Perspective. Humble perspective. You'll notice in chapter one, right off the bat, in verse 14, Solomon says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun here on earth, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. But do you notice he says, I have seen, I've made an observation, I've looked, I've learned, I've noticed. The preacher's perspective is, We long for something to break the monotonous cycle and nothing like that exists. Not that herbal vitamin supplement you bought last week that you're waiting for to come in the mail. Not all the food you're trying to eat to make you live longer. 
Ecclesiastes has no easy answers. No easy answers. There's no room in Ecclesiastes for the smug or the self-righteous who feel that they get their way every day. Those who glue veneer over religion, over ungodliness. Those who say God's way didn't work, I quit. Ecclesiastes humbly aligns you with God. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And under the sun is where vanity reigns. This world, you just take a quick sampling of the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes. Nothing is new, chapter one, verse nine. Work is distressing, chapter two, verse 17. Fools steal, chapter two, verse 19. Corruption abounds, chapter three, verse 16. Men are oppressed, chapter four, verse one. Popularity fluctuates, chapter four, verse 15. And on and on and on it goes. Solomon is the most objective person in the room. I like to say this when I'm doing biblical counseling with people. Uh, They come to me for some sort of help with the problem they're having, and at some point in the meeting, almost always happens, I'm able to say, now, time out, calm down. I think I'm the most objective person in the room on this one. Solomon is wise because of years. He knows. Even the wisest can fall grievously and badly. and He knows wisdom at this point in his life. He's got a wrinkled face and he's got a, a grieving heart over the many regrets for the many things he did to forsake God. Wisdom is knowing and doing God's will revealed in God's word. Wisdom is understanding God's design and living aligned. Folly is going your own way. We need to understand what wisdom actually does. What's the outcome of wisdom? I think it's very easy for us to think, well, I'm gonna get wisdom and I'm gonna have all the answers. I'm gonna know how to navigate everything and God's gonna give me some secret, you know, uh, air traffic controller's seat to his providential orchestration and I'll know what others don't. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said this, many mistake the wisdom of God for a gift of deepened insight into providential meaning and purpose of events going on around us, that, that they think they have the ability to see what God has done and why he has done what he has done in a particular case and what he is going to do next. You see, wisdom is not your private seat in God's air traffic control center. You're not in the tower. Wisdom doesn't give you leverage to control your life. That's folly. See, the gift of God's wisdom to you presupposes your inability to figure it out. The wise learn to walk by faith, not sight. Ecclesiastes is the faith book in the Old Testament. Hebrews 11 tells us faith is the assurance of things, hope for the conviction of things not yet seen. 
You can go through your life and rehearse your regrets. And it will grow. Your regrets will grow as you contemplate your failings. But your perspective grows when you contemplate your failings with your, in light of your inevitable death and in light of the cross of Christ. Life. Inevitable death and perspective. Fourth, grace. This is common grace. Go over to chapter 3. We'll just look at verses 9 through 13. Notice a phrase God's gift to man. Verse 13, verse 9 says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Over to chapter 2, verse 25. Verse 24 says, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I saw is from the hand of God. Verse 25, For apart from him who can eat, And who can have enjoyment? You think of all the beautiful things that God has given. Trees and birds and appetite and sleep and work and homes and family and friends and handicaps and challenges. What we see in Ecclesiastes 2.25 is that God gives things, but also God gives the power to enjoy his gifts of grace, his common grace gifts. He has given all these gifts to everyone. There are so many people living today who see the sun rise and see the sun set, breathe the air no matter how polluted, eat the food no matter how toxic, and drink the water and go along and not acknowledge that all these common grace gifts were given by God. We take them for granted. The believer is given both the gift and the ability to enjoy the gift, and you get joy in the Lord because of it. Plenty of people get the gift, but they cannot enjoy it. Evil happens under the sun, but the gift of God to all who fear him is the gift to enjoy his gift. Life, inevitable death, perspective, and God's gifts of grace given to all. And fifth, worship. A lot of people think of worship as singing. They'll say, I'm going to church to worship, and I might pray, I might listen to the sermon, but I'm there to sing. And that's such a stunted view of Genesis 1-1. And God's sovereignty. Worship is meant to be all of life offered back to God. How we live 
We're to live in fear and obedience. Look at chapter five and verse seven. God is the one you must fear. Go to chapter 12 at the very end. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Summation, aggregate argument, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And fear is fear. Now you've got panic-stricken fear. You know, maybe a fear of getting on the freeway going the wrong way or someone coming towards you going the wrong way. You got that panic-stricken fear of falling on your face as you're walking up the steps. You got the, the fear of forgetting your lines. You got the fear of failing miserably. And there's the fear of the known. Coronavirus. Stockpiling for the apocalypse. You got the fear of the unknown. Everything taken away. Unexplained panic. All the what-ifs. Wisdom says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job said it. The psalmists say it. Proverbs says it. Wisdom is understanding how to live pleasing to God. Where you pursue godliness and to have wisdom, you have to fear God. But the believer's fear is different than the unbeliever's terror or fright. Martin Luther said it is filial. It's the fear of a child in awe of his father who wants to do nothing to violate his father or disrupt the loving relationship. It is reverence, it is awe, it is respect. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the starting point is adoration for God. It is worship. Go to the opposite extreme of the fool who says there is no God. Psalm 14, verse one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool doesn't lack intelligence. They might be the smartest person in the hemisphere, but they have no reverence for God. Knowledge of God leads to wisdom that is more precious than rubies. You pursue the knowledge of God through the word of God, you find wisdom to live pleasing to him, When you fear God, you're not fearing an oncoming snarling dog or a runaway virus. Fearing God is worshiping sovereignty. And we will worship. We will worship. We do worship. Are you worshiping sovereignty? Are you actively obeying revealed truth? Remember, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The one to whom God will look, Isaiah 66, is the one who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at the word of God. We're told to fear God and keep his commands. Uh, The Hebrew word there for keep means to guard. It means to take heed to. It's the idea of guarding the word with all of your heart, trusting God with all of your heart, 
giving heed to his commandments in every aspect of your life. Where, where obeying God is not drudgery-bound duty, but it is delight. Where obeying God is not eat your veggies, it's here's your steak or your tofu. Verse 14 tells us that God will bring every deed to judgment. Every secret thing, whether good or evil. So you cannot say, I can do whatever I want. God is keeping score. He is keeping score. God is going to bring every deed to judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is Solomon preaching. This is the guy who went astray. This is the guy who lived to tell. That other world that you were made for is governed by Almighty God and his obeyable word. Life, death, perspective, grace, and worship. Themes that just permeate Ecclesiastes. What do I hope that God does in us through Ecclesiastes? I want to give you five corresponding hopes as it relates to these five themes. First, I hope and I pray that Ecclesiastes will transform the way that you think about life. I know Ecclesiastes hits you in the face, but it's providential. It wakes you up. It's a wake-up slap. It exposes your idolatry. It creates a hunger in you for something better. Seventh century poet and preacher John Donne said, Ecclesiastes spoke to him as a sinful man living in a sinful world. He said Solomon hides none of his sins and that Solomon pours out his own soul, that he's honest about his troubles and it touches the heart. I'm just praying that Ecclesiastes will transform the way we think about life, that we would stop wearing masks and be honest. Say, we need Jesus and we need his people's help. Secondly, I'm praying and hoping that Ecclesiastes will transform the way you think about death. That unseen, unspoken, unnamed, let's cover it up, we don't want to look at it, reality and that you would engage your mind with your inevitable death and get used to the idea of your inevitable death, that sober reality, and, and let it become a sober, unfeared reality that drives you to live fully for God. Third, I pray and hope that Ecclesiastes will untwist your perspective from a fixation on, on working for comfort to a fixation on living wisely for God. N.D. Wilson said, there is a school of American thought that suggests that we are supposed to live furiously and foolishly when young, slave away pointlessly when adults, 
and coast into low-impact activity as soon as financially possible. And then he says, isn't that just a kiss on the lips from a dog? The gospel is not going to lead you into a trouble-free life of ease. The gospel is not going to lead you to, I did all that and now I'm done retirement ideas. You are not meant to live for yourself. You are meant to live fully and wisely with all the gusto you have for God governed by his word. Fourth, I'm praying and hoping that Ecclesiastes will teach you how to enjoy God and his gifts. That you would move from getting and using to receiving and enjoying. Ecclesiastes teaches God's sovereignty over everything. Chapters three through five. He gives good gifts. Just pause for a moment. Just stop for a moment. Don't write anything down. Just Look around the room. Look around the room. You're here. You're here right now. Make some eye contact. And think this with me. God is so good and so kind to give us this moment in time right now. Right now, your, your heart's beating. You don't even realize it. You're breathing. You're, you're alive. Think about Job and what his message was. It was OGK. Only God knows. What's the message of Ecclesiastes? It's OGS. Only God satisfies. Only God satisfies. Just sit at Solomon's feet and listen and learn and look and gain some perspective. Get a grip on God's sovereignty and your littleness and just be humbled and and be reawakened to live life fully for God. Last, I am praying that Ecclesiastes will transform your life from hopping from event to event to a moment-by-moment gospel trust in Christ. Chapter 12 tells us there is a creator, there is a shepherd, there is a God who is the judge that we are to worship fully and obey totally until we're out of time. Glorify God and die. Like David, Acts 13, 36, serve God's purpose in your generation and die. Knowing that nothing satisfies except God. Knowing that everything matters for God. Knowing that you need to stop flirting with the world and repent of your idolatry and conform yourself to God's standards every day. It's interesting. As you go through the wisdom literature, and you see this especially in Ecclesiastes, that it contains no direct messianic texts. No text where you can say, oh, that's, that's pointing to Jesus right there. But Ecclesiastes points to the gospel. Remember your creator. Follow the shepherd. Bow before the judge. Here is Christ, the one shepherd who gives abundant life. Here here is Christ, the good shepherd that lays down his life. Here is Jesus, the wisdom of God. 
Here's Jesus, the one who is greater than Solomon. Here is Jesus, the wise teacher that taught primarily in wisdom proverbs and parables. And here is Jesus who tells us that death is not the end. Jesus conquered death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he die, will live. All who believe in me will never die. What you do is you trace the progression of redemptive history to Jesus' resurrection and cast the preacher's words in Ecclesiastes in a new light. Because in Jesus you find saving grace for your soul. You find forgiveness, you find joy, you find grace, you find rest. Ecclesiastes is for every ordinary Christian belonging to an ordinary church, living an ordinary life, following an extraordinary savior. Knowing that we can do nothing apart from Jesus and that the things impossible with man are possible with God. It points us to Paul's words. Therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Amen? Well, let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. Give us this time and your word. We pray, Lord, that your word will have its effect. It's your desired effect upon us. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.